No, 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 no! For the love of God, no! Dan, what, what's going on? What's wrong? Oh, man, I just found out Heather Stephenson won't be doing an election interview for the podcast. We wanted to have all three major party leaders. We got Dugald Lamont, and we got Wab Canoe, but no Heather. This is so terrible. Oh, Dan, come on, mate. It's, it's no big thing. You gave it your best shot. And, I mean, yeah, I hate the idea of missing an interview with Heather as well, but we'll get past this. Nope, nope. It's total humiliation and a shock. I met Heather at Vic's Market on Pemina Highway in August, and after a very pleasant chat, she promised me she'd do an interview, looked me right in the eye as she was sorting through the locally grown tomatoes and said she'd make it happen. I feel so betrayed. Dan, Dan, you're taking this way too seriously. Come on, man. It's time to put this behind us and we get on with the next podcast. Okay. I'll try to pull myself together. Sorry, fellas. Uh, I just care way too much about the podcast. Uh, we know, we know that you care about the podcast. It's, it's time to think of life post-election. Okay. Life after the election. Got it. Hey, do you think Heather will talk with me after the election? Oh, Dan. Time to get over, Heather. I can assure you she's over you. The Winnipeg Free Press proudly presents, in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Megan and the Lone Ranger. Here are your hosts, Megan Sinclair and Dan the Lone Ranger Lett. And here we are with our uh, last podcast before Manitoba election, October 3rd. And uh, I have to be honest, guys, I, uh, I want to get something off my chest. <laughs> well, of course, this is really not entertainment or journalism. It's more therapy. So please go right ahead. <laughs> I am sick and tired of every time I go on a work trip that you guys then come on the podcast and make fun of me, say I'm in some secret location. Like people think that I'm off. Ha, you know, on some beach somewhere, and careful. <laughs> once I maybe was, but my point is, is that these work trips that I go on, like for instance, the trip that you were referring to last podcast, I was off in Victoria and Prince George, talking with teachers and communities and working with uh, people to try to make Indigenous education better. And you know, I had people going, "Oh, hey, you know, Dan and Adam are making fun of you on the podcast, saying that you're off doing dilly dallying around the world." Now, hang on just a minute. <laughs> if you listen to what I said, no, I said he was. You being actually mean. defended me. I but... said he was being mean, which he was, uh, and I never wanted to imply that you were on vacation. I wanted to imply you were working for CSIS. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, thanks a lot. Well, speaking of vacation, it is really true. Uh, here we are in the last podcast. We saved the last podcast for Manitoba Premier Heather Stephenson. Uh, the fact is, we called, we wrote, we emailed, we even faxed, I think. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and just the rebutes, the refusals, the, uh, the fact is that Premier Stephenson has rejected coming on the Negon and Lone Ranger a podcast now credit where credit yep. is due i don't think she rejected it i think she genuinely did say to you dan that she was up for it but things conspired against all of us perhaps uh, you know I, i'd like to think there was there's a good reason for not doing the interview 
Um, I'm just having trouble thinking of it right now. Uh, <laughs> I, I wonder. Know, it, well, I wonder about you know. Is it me? Is it you? Is well, it Adam? Yeah, it's probably me. Yeah. No, I had a I had a colleague who said to me, "Well, you know, she doesn't want to come on the podcast because she's afraid. She's afraid of you. She might be afraid of Negap, but she's definitely afraid of you. I, you know, I, I, you know, adults. I don't think are afraid of other adults in this context. Also, I think you know politicians." If there's anything that this Manitoba election you had to just to survive, you had to have very thick skin. And uh, certainly I think that there is lots of room to criticize all parties. And we've all written pieces over the past few years uh, that have offered evidence in whatever way. And, and I think that we can talk about evidence. We can talk yeah. about facts. We can talk about quotes, quotes, people, things that have been said during the campaign. Well, if, if there was a concern in the Tory war room, that, for example, you and I, or maybe just me, were being too critical of the Tory campaign. Honestly, and we're going to kind of go through the Tory campaign, but honestly, there were times where I felt in my narcissistic delusions <laughs> that you guys, you're running a campaign just to make me upset. Like You're, <laughs> you're provoking me with this campaign. No. Which I think says a lot about... Uh, the ways that we take things personally. And then, you know, we had fired up as columnists, but I also think that, you know, campaigns are about trying to s spark ideas and offer. And I hope that, I hope that today we'll do a good job. I mean, the fact is that we are here in the CJNU studios uh, late after waiting to hear the response. And, and we waited as late as we possibly could before the election. And uh, here we are, the three of us, we're going to go through the Tory campaign the best that we can, trying to be as fair as we can. Uh, to be able to, we've got all the stat, stats, statistics, we even got some quotations from Premier Stephenson to try to give an accurate uh, um, review of what the Tory campaign has been and uh, perhaps maybe talk about it a bit and talk about some of the ups and lows. And, and certainly the past 48 hours have been fascinating yep. to watch the ad campaigns that the progressive conservatives have made, which have made national headlines. So first, let me set the scene. Uh, Heather Stephenson, two years in office. Um, I talked to someone today, interestingly, who said she finished off the uh, previous term in government with a very powerful budget, uh, very generous. A lot of people have said to me it was a Duff Roblin-like uh, Tory budget. Uh, definitely investing in government, improving government services, and they, you know, they had all these announcements uh, up to the end of July, and then you know the blackout period kicked in, and then something really weird happened, and uh, you know it'll be it'll be an interesting story to pursue after the election, but in a in they went dark for most of August, the NDP essentially started the campaign. <laughs> in the first week of August, 28 days before the actual start of the campaign. And, it, it, you know, uh, maybe I'm trying to think of, I'm trying to put sense into what I sometimes have found to be a nonsensical campaign. But the sense of it is running behind in the polls significantly, in, uh, uh, especially in Winnipeg, um, worried that uh, they haven't made enough progress in fixing health care, that they haven't improved public education. They've offered lots of tax cuts. It's not buying them any love. So what do they do? Well, Nigan, uh, what did they do? 
they went very dark and uh, the past 48 hours. Um, all the things that brought Heather Stephenson to office. So let's look. Let's. I'll, I'll go back in the time machine yep. a little bit too myself. Um, you know, Heather Stephenson defeats Shelley Glover uh, by a slim margin. Some people criticize that campaign, that leadership convention or that leadership campaign. Uh, and so good, bad, great, ugly. We would, I would all think we'd agree that the majority of Manitoba MLAs supported Heather Stephenson. And Heather Stephenson was supposed to be refresh the party, take from what Brian Pallister was, which had become a very rancorous, and of course, we all know his comments on Indigenous peoples. And then for, a lo- for quite a while, I think Heather Stephenson had a pretty good ride, uh, was fairly riding high. Uh, and of course, we have to realize that you know, Heather Stephenson's a, a historical person, uh, first female premier in history. And a family with a deep uh, political legacy in this province. Yeah. And, you know, I think generally uh, was well-liked, even in across different other circles. And, I mean, generally in the public eye anyways, generally had a pretty fresh face. Then, uh, over the time period, she went from being what at the time was fairly moderate, because in Shelley Glover, the option for the Conservative Party was to turn really hard right and to go very Pierre Paglia, very... Uh, many ways, people party kind Con- of very convoy. I believe uh, is the current uh, fashionable, <laughs> very know. convoy like yeah. in in the in the uh, trend of the party. And then um, that was generally rejected by Heather Stephenson. She even uh, on all the issues that she seems to be against now was generally centrist for many of them, particularly when it comes to issues of reconciliation and the economy. And even the carbon tax wasn't something that she made a, a centerpiece of her focus. And when she became the lead of the federation, representing Manitoba, which they rotate, and um, she generally was seen as quite, you know, at the time, perhaps fitter for the position, and certainly someone who was ready for a prominent national voice. And something happened along the way, and uh, this election has really turned, I think, uh, the Conservative Party of Manitoba, Heather Stephenson, into many of the things that might have removed Brian Pallister from office. Uh, yeah. involving issues around saying quite divisive things around Indigenous peoples, um, really focusing on issues that Manitobans don't tend to care about. I think more Manitobans are caring about the reestablishment of ERs than tax cuts. And then, of course, the probably the biggest issue of all, which is um, crime in the city, poverty in the city, uh, homelessness. So, um, you know, on two points, uh, you know, I'll just, it will offer a contrast. Number one, this is the premier that brokered a deal to cease operations at the Prairie Green landfill. So with everybody running around with their, you know, in a a state of chaos over should we search the landfill, how do we search the landfill, uh, you know, the Winnipeg police had really dropped the ball, didn't, like, didn't let it be known that they were quite sure that there were remains in the landfill. You know, and Heather stepped in uh, and, and brokered this deal to cease operations at the landfill. And I will say the Prairie Green people were pretty good about it. They were just kind of waiting for somebody to ask them, and they were very compliant. But, you know, I thought, and I phoned uh, people in, in Premier's office, and I said, like, well played, like, well, well done. That is, like, right now, that gesture is uh that is a pretty strong gesture and one that she you know she had meetings with the the uh, members of the families of the missing women and you know uh, so there's that and then there i will also say in june uh she uh she marched in pride on the pride and pride day now she had she wasn't allowed to speak because of a transgression the year before 
where she uh, spoke but didn't march. So this year they told her she was banned, but she talked her way back in. She met with people, uh, which is what good good leaders do, right? My bad, should have marched, didn't, let me march. So she, then she marched in pride. Okay, then we go forward to clearly a staged announcement that she is, now we've got the feasibility study about searching Prairie Green. She comes out and not only just sort of announces flatly that the province won't pay a penny. In the same, search. in the same, exact same time. Yeah, and but then also begins this profound, you know, effort to distort the facts surrounding the search you know like an 84 million dollar to 184 million dollar range became 184 million dollars yeah and and uh you know the dangers surrounded you know uh, working in a landfill of a search like this which are quite frankly the same dangers that people who work in landfills face on a daily basis became too serious to or you know too too potent to and it was like, you know, really, I, like I suffered from a little bit of whiplash because I was trying, you know, but the, the whiplash on that was then followed up by the whiplash with the prior to the dropping of the writ with the parental rights. Yeah, and we talked about that in our election panel, uh, the fact that the, the Tories very early on made this as almost a centerpiece, uh, almost uh, signaling that they were moving towards a Shelley Glover-like right hard turn in the party and uh we had uh, in our election panel this conversation on the issue of parental rights and the fact that manitoba electorate just hasn't responded to that issue of course those of you who haven't heard much about the elect the parental rights because it really hasn't taken center stage since the beginning of the campaign uh in provinces particularly new brunswick and and others alberta and so on there is this movement to give parents control over the ways in which young people in schools can declare their gender. And uh, there is a movement uh, within that proposal of recognizing parental rights. And they've put out uh, MLA Abhi Khan, uh, who is uh, kind of one of the more um, publicly known faces, former Blue Bomber, as kind of the face of this parental rights campaign by saying that, you know, parents have a right to decide if a, if a kid can declare their gender or not, which is just full and fraught of, full of, uh, of stereotypes and problems involving um, gender and sexuality and race and age and, and all these different parts that are really problematic. That go so I'm going to read a quote uh, from Heather uh, and so that, you know, we, we are at least responding directly to what she said and not just our interpretation of what she said. So, uh, and this is, this was from, is actually from a combination of things. Uh, but these are direct quotes from, from uh, the leader of the PC party. Teachers and school st staff do an incredible work educating our kids, but parents want to know what's going on in the day-to-day -day lives of their children. We have heard loud and clear from parents that they worry about losing touch with what matters most for their children, what they're learning, how they're feeling, and if they're struggling. We want parents to have the right to be involved in addressing bullying and other behavioral changes. And by leaving parents out of that equation, I think is wrong. I think parents need to be included. That's all we're doing. So the fact is that's really not all they're doing. Although in what they're doing, the most frustrating thing for journalists 
in raising the parental rights, uh, you know, banner and promising to amend provincial legislation to uh, enshrine and extend parental rights is they haven't actually said like they, there are categories. Yeah, they avoid it like the plague. Yeah. yeah. So you know, in efforts to get her to expand, when you really press uh, Heather Stephenson, what she will do is say, "Well, you know, a lot of that needs to be worked out. We're like, we need to, we need to consult and talk to parents and figure." And it they out. will not ever say uh, to talk about this as a gender issue or as a sexuality issue. Uh, it may be talked. They'll say, "Well, this is this is not about that. This is uh, we don't know what this is about just yet." But if you look to the other provinces, the, when we use the word parental rights, inevitably this is caused because of the issue around sexuality in schools. So, and here, here is, um, like, I've spent, you know, 30, 30 40, many years covering. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Uh, I, we'll, I, we'll erase that out yeah, or block that right. out, beep it I out. Don't, I don't mean, I don't want to say how many years, but a lot of years I've been covering politics. One of the worst things that anybody outside your campaign can say about you is that I know what you're saying. I don't believe that you believe what you're saying, but you're saying it to gain some sort of a political advantage. So not only are you saying something that's ugly, but you're saying something, you're being disingenuous, intellectually dishonest about it. That really is to me, that is the ultimate criticism I can level against a political campaign. And what I will say about the, the PC campaign is, I don't actually believe that Heather Stephenson believes that this is a good idea. I think that she believes and the people around her believe it's their last best chance to turn aside a growing momentum of, of support for the new Democratic Party. But I don't actually believe that they believe that, which makes what they're doing kind of worse to me. Would you say the same thing about the landfill issue? I mean, I think we both agree that uh, Heather Stephenson has demonstrated oh, time and time again in the past uh, a progressive view when it comes to inclusion of young people and, and um, you know, even when it comes to Indigenous peoples. I mean, she famously went on interviews uh, wearing a, a, red, a red dress pin um, saying that she stood for the issue of murder-missing Indigenous women and girls. And one of her very first speeches, in fact, uh, she came out and said after taking leadership, uh, we need to focus on listening to Indigenous peoples. We need to focus on reconciliation because Brian Pallister had neglected it so badly in the past and, and done great harm by saying you know, in, inaccurate and divisive things. And then would you say that that is at the core of Heather Stephenson in the rejection of the landfill search, that she doesn't actually believe that, but that she's saying it to appeal to a political base? You know, most definitely. And the reason why is because, like, let's go back and look at the situation that she was facing at the time. So the feds had not said one way or the other whether they were willing to kick in money. Uh, the city was obviously trying to backpedal as quickly as possible away from the idea of paying any money, even though you could argue that the city ought to... They and ought this to is a, and the, people have all said this yeah. is a police issue. Yeah. Why has this become such we a should, political yeah, issue? We should, they should take out a mortgage on City Hall and pay for the search. Uh, and then there's the province. So... I believe a real leader in that situation, remember this is July, so we're still like 60 days away from the campaign. In July, late July, when she, she comes out and it's clearly they have created an opportunity for her to say this, no search of the landfill. I'm not allowing any money to be committed to the... She could have said, you know what? 
We're going to meet with city officials, with the federal well, government. We're going to meet, and we're going to try and figure out a way of doing this and kick it down the road. One hundred percent down the road. You know, I, I'm no expert on comms, uh, on you know how to handle issues. I'm certainly not a politician, but I can tell you that I looked at that situation and said, uh, "Why are you it, doing this now?" It is yeah. so easy to uh, make something look as an election campaign is coming up. It's sure to be divisive. That make it look like you're doing work. Yeah. You might not even be doing work, but that you would be looking like you're trying. But she came so vociferously out to say, um, no, "I am," and the famous phrase that she now uses, "standing firm oh. that this I will not put any money or people's lives at risk because of." And this is the phrase that I hate the most, which is, "There's no guarantees." Well, <laughs> like there's uh, newsflash: there's no guarantees of anything. Yeah. And the idea of trying and giving peace to these families, treating them like human beings, is the whole problem in the first place. You know, the idea that Indigenous women have been mistreated, neglected, marginalized uh, by everyone, every institution, and that's how they end up in a landfill. And the fact that yet insult to injury, uh, and this gets us to, I think, the recent campaign, which has really, I think, rocked Winnipeg, and I think it certainly rocked the Indigenous community, I was at a gathering this morning where that's all anyone could talk about, which is what the premier is doing in uh, creating ads, big one-page ads yeah. in our newspaper, uh, and putting them out saying she's standing firm and lauding, celebrating the fact that she will not search for Indigenous women at a landfill site. Would, would you say that, um, I mean, it's always like whether it's Indigenous or non-Indigenous, you know, leadership and the broader community, but would you say a lot of indigenous people, even particularly those who may have spoken directly uh, to the premier about this, were they shocked at at at, at the change of course? Like, it, or is this sort of, or was she just living up to their, you know, to their expectations? Did did she actually create expectations though with something more supportive and progressive? Oh, I think people had hoped that. Uh, this was a person who would show at least interest in the ways that Brian Pallister didn't show interest in uh, the issues of reconciliation. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, it was a promising start. I mean, even people mm -hmm. who had created favorability, I mean, some of the most popular people mm -hmm. in the Conservative Party with Indigenous communities are, you know, people like Eileen Clark and, and people who then became started to come back mm -hmm. into the fold and be involved, who had rejected Brian Pallister. And, and I think... The fact that Heather Stephenson came out and said we even needed a feasibility study was in direct reaction to the Winnipeg police who were debating the issue of, you know, I, we don't think it's feasible. I mean, Chief Danny Smythe, I, I wrote a piece about this to say, you know, why, why frame this as feasible? We're talking about human beings here. And, you know, you could compare it with the submarine search of millionaires at the bottom of the ocean. Or Picton. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's not an issue of feasibility. We can't put human lives as feasible or not. We're talking about an issue around giving people, our citizens, brothers and sisters, peace. And so anyways, uh, the, the challenge, I think, is this hard turn that the Conservative Party have taken really smacks of desperation. And what it looks like is that uh, our polling, of course, that we've done, uh, suggests that half of Manitobans don't favor the land search, uh, the, the landfill search. And, uh, you know, but there is a hard 30. There's a hard, strongly opposed of 30%. In that movement and that's the that's the shoring up that's the shoring up move yeah. which is that these ads uh making such a strong stand in the landfill celebrating it in kind of a what i call the gruesome way 
um, just is about shoring up 30% and not appealing to anybody else. So uh, I'm going to read another direct quote from Heather. So again, th this is exactly what the Premier said. We're very concerned about what was in the report, the feasibility report, and the risks that were identified, asbestos and other toxic chemicals and so on. We made what, we th what was a very difficult decision. We may disagree on the decision that's been made, but I think we can all agree on one thing, that this is a horrific tragedy that's happened, not just to the families, but to the community and to other high-risk individuals who are living in our community. I want to make sure that we've got proper programming in place to help those individuals through this, these difficult times, to ensure this doesn't happen to more families in the community. Now, the the part of that that continues to leap off the page for me is a very difficult decision. So let's accept let's accept this decision at face value. Sure. Okay. L let's actually so, believe for a moment that we've got health and safety issues, even though experts have said yeah, they, you know, have questioned so, that. Yeah. So. Very difficult decision. I, I do think, and, and for those of you listening to the podcast, we've referred to advertisements. So the, the free press sells now wrapper ads. So this is a, a uh, like a, 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 a wrapper. It's a front page and a back page and two inside pages that wrap around the actual front page of the newspaper. And uh, if you're wondering... Uh, whether those of us in the journalistic side like the rapper advertisements, we do not. Uh, do we understand that it's a, it is a reflection of the new economics surrounding newspapers? Absolutely. Enough said about that. Uh, but, you know, on it, so you, you have uh, tiles with individual promises. There were four tiles. The number one tile at the top of the wrapper on the front page is standing firm and saying no to the the landfill and the 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 problem that I have with her acknowledging that it's a difficult decision is that I'd like somebody to come up with another parallel of a difficult decision that somebody had to make where lives were at stake you know where it was very emotional where making the difficult decision became a springboard to a tagline in a campaign. Like, uh, you know, I honestly believe, and in a lot of the worst ways, the conservative campaign is forging new ground. Uh, you know, they are... I mean, well, you know, I, I called it in gruesome directions. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a very weird thing. Okay, well, but let's, let's take these two issues together, and you've referred to that you think they're going after the hard 30. Okay, so I'm, I'm actually, let, let's talk about the landfill first. And I, I'm going to slightly disagree with you um, in that, uh, again, the plural of anecdote is not data, but I will rely heavily on anecdote for this. Like I've been in, at birthday parties, I've been at uh, other social gatherings, just exchanges I've had with people on social media and via email. I think the conservative, the progressive conservatives have done a masterful job of misrepresenting this issue to the point where when I talk to people who are not directly involved and maybe not all that well informed about the full, you know, story, the first thing they bring up is, oh man, $184 million. Oh, 100%. That is, yeah. that is so much money and nobody even like, nobody even knows whether the remains are there. And I usually respond with, well, there's actually a range. It could cost anywhere from 84 to 184, but there's also a possibility that who knows, it would cost less uh, than that if, uh, you know, and as for not knowing, 
the police have already said there are remains in the landfill. So, but these details get lost. So that's where, when we go to uh, our free press poll, uh, Probe Research, CTV News, and we found a slight majority, like it was like 52% said, search the landfill, and 48 said no. Two things come to mind. Number one is, I'm actually pretty impressed that 52% of people could fight through the misinformation of the Tory campaign. But the other part of it is, I actually think that this is trying to appeal to a lot of people who are queasy uh, about reconciliation and, and confused is, about it. This is what I was going to add yeah. to what... You, what um, uh, this isn't just about a landfill. Yeah. This is also about painting Wab Canoe in all the ways that the Tories have tried for how many years now? Yeah. Uh, eight years to paint him as a criminal, paint him as a ruffian, the exact campaign that we started off with at the very beginning, which is the Wab way is the wrong way. Uh, the Wab way is the criminal way. The Wab way is X, Y, Z. There's the ad that went out today, which is the ad uh, calling, him, calling him a yeah. joker yeah. and uh, then listing off. And, and the goal of that ad, of course, is for all of us in the media to remind the public that he has a criminal past because he has time and time again said, I take acknowledgement for this past. And uh, while he may not have said sorry, I don't think he owes sorry to the individual person, but maybe to the people that maybe he harmed in the past when we don't know about that and we don't know about the history around that. But absolutely, everybody deserves a second chance. Certainly if he was a non-Indigenous person, he would get a second chance. Mm -hmm. Most of those, uh, you know, M not non-Indigenous or Canadian MPs and MLAs who have criminal past always get a second chance, but apparently if you're Indigenous, you... You never get a second chance. And that's kind of what this has been painted as, is that uh, they want to paint and draw the biggest fears for certain Manitobans around the issue of a First Nations premier that isn't really so much about Wab anymore, but it's about when I was a kid looking at the front page of the free press and seeing Manitoba's most wanted and seeing Indigenous faces as most of those wanted. Uh, which, of course, isn't because Indigenous peoples are savages and criminals. It's because colonialism, because violence, because the Indian Act, because residential schools, uh, they have been put there. It's a logical outcome that Indigenous peoples uh, tend to be more in prison, tend to be more in the child welfare system, tend to be more murdered and missing. And, uh, but yet, people don't understand that. They don't understand the historical side of it. So what, instead, they're left with stereotypes. And they really want to uh, draw upon those stereotypes in voters in the, in the waning days of this campaign to try in some way to shore up that 30% and to really just to save the house. And I, I would argue, and I said this today to some people, um, more, mostly because for the first time ever, I'm, I get emails that say, I've always voted conservative. I'm actually going to vote NDP this time. And it's mostly based on uh, the misrepresentation of the landfill or that I'm uncomfortable with the way in which uh, Stephenson is in, in, you know, creating this uh, creation around Indigenous peoples are drawing on stereotypes. And I think they see that. They know that in, in many ways this campaign has been a disaster. And as a result, they're trying to save the House. Yeah. Well, again, I think that the um, there, is, there is a growing, I, I've called it anti-reconciliationist, uh, but I, I think it is a discomfort with reconciliation at the, the recent Conservative Party of Canada convention in Quebec City. One of the strong themes that ran through speeches there was this idea of like, we, we have to stop apologizing for stuff. We've apologized enough, asked and answered. And I, I think that that is the, 
Like, I've heard that for years from individual readers in the free press. But, you know, certainly, like, to, 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 to see that expressed as a major theme in a uh, uh, convention, a meeting of the, the, the party that could, uh, you know, uh, form the next government in Canada is worrisome to me because, you know, really, when it comes right down to it, like when you try to deconstruct an entire culture, who's to say how long the, the reconstruction takes? And, and <laughs> well, you know, I mean, yeah, and I'm I mean, going to go out on a limb too and say, you know what? Uh, those of us, like the ancestors and the people who tried to deconstruct, yeah, we don't get to say when enough is enough, right? You know, like <laughs> or, we should really, we should really let the people who were deconstructed and come absolutely, to us and let us know. we should put as much energy to build a culture as we have to, to just in destroying it. And the fact is that we have not yet done in any way yeah. the same kind of vigor and energy into helping Indigenous peoples than we have destroying them. So, as the somewhat neutral party in the podcast to try and summarize a lot of the discussion that you've had thus far it seemed like in the premiership of heather stephenson it was a return to the progressive side of progressive conservative versus the previous premier who certainly heavily lent more toward the conservative side of progressive conservative which means that now with particular emphasis on the issue of the landfill but also some of the other issues that you've both highlighted it makes it even more strange to witness this change in position from the Premier. And I don't want to speak for you both, but I feel like that's what leads us all to question the motivation behind taking these stances. The sincerity of it. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. But more than that, honestly, it just saddens me that we don't have the opportunity to sit down with Heather to discuss these things. Because I really do think... Again, you're going to make me cry again. Oh, I know, but <laughs> as the neutral guy in the podcast, yeah. I just want to remind people, yeah, you might think Dan and Nigan have opinions. They certainly do. But this, this podcast has never been an opportunity no. to have a gotcha moment with anyone from no. any political stripe. It's always been an opportunity to facilitate meaningful and interesting yeah, conversation. Listen, I mean, let's listen to our election panel, for example. We went at length letting people from all different walks of life take a great deal of space out. yeah yeah uh but you know i mean this is an issue uh, that has just drowned out some of the other elements of the tory campaign uh tax cuts says i think that they tried to make this a central issue and then of course crime and justice and homelessness or the fact that conservatives poured all this money into policing yeah. to try to deal with the issue of crime uh we all already talked about the fact that that in many ways drove the tone of the debate early on in the campaign because Wab Canoe from the NDP came out with a big crime announcement, almost in direct reaction to the announcement of the hiring of all these police officers. So in many ways, the Conservatives early on, by sticking with some quite core issues, mm -hmm. and as we polled, the issues that Manitobans care a lot about, um, the top three issues were health care, uh, the issue of affordability, and the issue of crime. Those are, those are the ones that people cared about the most. It yeah. wasn't the landfill. Now it's suddenly all about the landfill. The landfill, and also like circling back a, bit, uh, back a bit to parental rights. So, you know, we talked about, so what's the macro strategy or the real strategy behind the landfill? And, uh, you know, and, and I do agree with you. It's, it's, you want to galvanize, you want to motivate that, that core. I actually think that the, the, the way they've gone at it is to try and also capture some, soft conservative support by people who might feel like might genuinely feel non-indigenous people who might feel 
fatigue from the just, I think you know, that's talk, a real you know that's a real possibility. I, I don't know <laughs> if there's enough there. I mean, I guess you know we have been talking time and time again about the tightness of ridings. Um, I wonder if there is, and I wrote about this. I said I wonder if there's enough of a discomfort with the, just the notion of a First Nations premier to push to push that enough. But I think the loss of the Liberal vote and what it's looking like to be a real bottoming out of that. Yep. Maybe more than the loss of the liberal vote. Maybe more than the anti-indigenous or anti-reconciliation vote. Well, but even more than that, like I'm talking to a lot of conservatives right now who are extremely uncomfortable about uh, parental rights and landfill, and um, somewhat confused by it. And these are people who will vote conservative. Like a lot of these people are, that I know are people who are deeply involved in the party have been for years what they do you know when they're not involved like they're not running the campaign so but what they do because they're loyal soldiers is they hold their nose and they vote you know for their party but you know that's though there aren't enough of those people so but there are another constituency of people one more degree of separation which is all of the peers of the people that i'm talking to so they are you know people who have also supported the uh the PC party for a very long time, but they, their response will not be to vote for the NDP, but their response will be not to show up and vote. And that's, I think the, the big question, I would also say the same thing. And we're talking a lot about the kind of passion involving uh, the search of the landfill. And we're talking about the passion of Manitobans. Uh, And, you know, I was with a group of uh, people this morning. I I mentioned it already. uh, 600 indigenous peoples at the convention center in downtown Winnipeg all just furious and all just uh i still think at our most passionate and furious uh we often turn to well i'm just not going to vote and you know i'm not going to participate in this colonial system uh rather than to vote and and i uh i i would like to think that that indigenous peoples are more interested in voting but the trends are suggesting that it's pretty much plateaued and that indigenous peoples tend to about 30% of us vote. And uh, while there is, I've said numbers like, you know, 20,000 first-time voters in this election are reaching the age of 18 for the first time. You know, the potential of the Indigenous youth vote is remarkable. Uh, Historical mistrust may be strong enough to keep people, but I think absolutely that the Conservatives, if there's any button to push, push, it is the landfill and that may drive enough young Indigenous voters to vote and in those key ridings be the difference. Well, it, you know, it, it'll certainly be interesting. You know, on the other side, like every, the two major negative planks of the campaign both have a risk-reward equation attached to them. So parental rights, the strategy of the PCs, I think well-reported by, uh, by our newspaper now, has been, you know, it's a play for um, social conservatives in the immigrant communities of, uh, of uh, South Winnipeg. Now, remarkably, uh, the, the most diverse riding, federal riding in Winnipeg, so this would be the riding that has the greatest proportion of different racialized groups other than white, is Winnipeg South is the most diverse riding in the wow. city. And it's, it's, it's purely macroeconomics and, and demographics and immigration policy that's sort of driven this. So 
huge uh, Indo-Canadian population, huge East African and African populations, uh, Filipinos, um, and, uh, you know, not, these people are not necessarily the traditional inner city North End immigrant community. Yeah, I was going to say, so, I mean, those communities, inner city North End, Maples, uh, those are those are definitely diverse communities. Yep. In fact, where the diversity would be the majority, but may not be as many cultures. And so, I, I think the strategy, um, you know, is is the Tories were hoping this was going to be a circuit breaker, so that you know the Maples, for example, hotly contested between the NDP and the Tories has been for decades now. So. Could, you know, I can, I can hear the conversation almost in the Tory war room. Could an emphasis on parental rights upend, you know, the momentum the NDP might normally have in that part of the city? Could enough people who might vote NDP actually change their votes to, uh, to support the Tories based on this one issue. It's the same thing, and so it's a play for social conservatives in those communities. Now, what I would say is interesting is when I watch the television coverage of the big rally at the legislature, so a rally and counter-rally. So rally in favor of parental rights, counter-rally in, uh, 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 in support of LGBTQ rights. On the, the, the parental rights side, three out of every five faces were racialized groups brown faces and it, it was significant like it was it was really obvious to me and i can see in the tory war room that they're like they're pointing and they're going there we go so the people i've talked to in the ndp campaign about it there's the traditional analysis which is when you go which so, is exactly why you put abby khan as the face of the uh, rights no, no, no that's right people are trying to understand why abby khan it's not because he's at risk in fort white i don't really think abby khan's at risk in fort white and for those of you scoring at home the liberals have pulled everything out they pulled all their resources out of fort white out of all the city ridings they're trying to shore up saint boniface because the voter Wab, ID... Wab Canoe was there yesterday yep. making a French announcement. So the NDP 100% yep. sees C, yeah, yeah. Boniface is capable. But Abi Khan, no. Abi Khan is, uh, you know, let's face it, in a pretty white, you know, caucus. He he is one of the notable uh, non-white faces and they're making use of that. There are, you know, his face is on bus shelters and benches and recycling bins all over the city. Um, you know, so when I talk to the NDP, what they will say is, well, when you go this dark and negative, especially this late in the campaign, it's usually a sign of desperation. Except that they'll also say, but you know, we're not entirely sure how this is going to land. Uh, you know, I, I can see half a dozen ridings in the south part of Winnipeg, you know, where like 500 votes that switch from the NDP to the Tories, which is a swing of a thousand votes. Like, could it? Like, could it be in? Like, could it save seats for the Tories? I think it's quite possible. Uh, I hope it doesn't. Uh, not because I want, I, I care who wins, but because I don't want anybody to win on that issue. And the, the, the wild card, and we've been saying it in the podcast week after week, is the wild card is just will the, will the liberal vote hold? And if the liberal vote won't hold. Sorry, uh, this just in. 
Yeah, liberal vote has imploded. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I just got it. Somebody just handed it to me right now. <laughs> the, the, with all respect to Dougal Lamont, who is a great guest on our podcast, uh, they've run uh, a campaign that I think has been um, uh, energetic at times. Uh, a real good, uh, good college try. But the, the fact is that the NDP saw the blood in the water with the Liberals have uh, Wabkunul asked continual questions to Dougal Lamont and went after uh, Dougal Lamont's vote and has been going after it for a while now. And now the reality is that with that Liberal, if that Liberal slips, um, which it looks like it's going to, then the reality is that the NDP is going to benefit from that. So while we're talking a little bit about Conservative votes going over to the NDP, I think it might be as much, maybe more so, the Liberal vote, which will maybe make yeah. the difference in those key ridings. So I can't tell you who told me the story. Because uh, I can't reveal I'm going to guess story. it's Adam. Is it no, Adam? No, no, no. Did Adam no, tell you the story? No, I can neither confirm no, it nor deny. No, it wasn't Adam either. And you don't get any more guesses. Okay. <laughs> no, but I, someone related a story about being at an event where uh, Gary Dewar was there and Hugh McFadden, was, who was the former leader of the PC party, was there. And uh, they were chatting. Uh, Gary and Hugh were very cordial. Uh, and uh, But there was a third person there watching, you know, the, you know, the kind of playful jabs and whatever. And, and Hugh walked off, and this person said to Gary Dewar, like, uh, wow, like, uh, you, you guys, it looked like there was, like, some, some real edginess, you know, between you, like... Uh, are you concerned, like you know, about what he might do in the next election? And he goes, "I don't care who the PC leader is. I care who the liberal leader is." And it it is it's really always been thus. Like even even though outside the city of Winnipeg, Tories and NDP uh, parties compete for the same votes out there. Like if if the if the PCs win Dauphin or the Tor uh, the NDP wins Dauphin and uh and Gimli and Selkirk they'll have done it by capturing a lot of support from people who voted Tory for a couple of elections in the city of Winnipeg the liberals are a huge x factor in in uh, determining whether the the PCs uh, or the NDP have the upper hand and in this particular election and I don't think for lack of trying uh you know uh Dugal just hasn't found traction the liberals haven't found traction i, I would also say to organizationally not running yeah not running it's in every writing is, is know, unforgivable yeah the paper candidate issue i think is the unforgivable issue not running candidates in seven eight writings i believe right and yeah and just for those of you again scoring at home you know like literally they could walk into the studio dougal could walk into the studio and say to adam Adam, would you be our candidate in Thompson? And he'd be allowed to put his name on the ballot. Adam, don't run in Thompson. When you run, run in the city. <laughs> well, I would have to provide my consent. But I would, I would yeah, tell yeah. all my cousins in Thompson to vote. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, right. but yeah. you get a, a no, vote total like, of four. It really is like they don't even need someone who lives in Thompson to run in Thompson. That's why, like, not filling those. Yeah, it's just unforgivable. And, and, and not having that electorate to compete with for the NDP is going to be a huge boon and it's in, yeah. a, in a very tight race that is looking less tight than perhaps we've predicted in the past yeah uh, in the past few weeks but still will be tight in a number of ridings and so what we're looking at and people have been asking for me to you know like we've been What's sort of prediction? talking about uh, predictions <laughs> um i mean at this point it, it is if the ndp vote comes out if the liberal vote uh, fades yep. um 
I don't think the Conservatives have shown anything to appeal to other than that strong 30 I talked about, which is almost a guarantee of, let's say, between 16 to 20 seats. And so we're looking at something very real and histories being made. I mean, regardless of who wins on Tuesday, I actually, I've been telling everybody that history will be made on Tuesday. We'll either have the first elected female premier in history. That's remarkable onto itself. Mm -hmm. Way to go, Manitoba. We'll also perhaps have the first First Nations premier in history. Remarkable. Way to go, Manitoba. Yeah, it's, uh, well, I would also say in in a broader sense, this is the first province to put parental rights fully on the ballot. (laughs) <laughs> uh, like it has been, it has played a role in, in, uh, at least one other election, but not to this extent. So what, like, you know, again, that, that will, that will have an impact on other conservative parties in other provinces and whether or not they, you know, uh, decide to, you know, dance, dance with the, well, you mean uh, that, the you know, side. suing the, go- the federal government again over the carbon tax, that's not the. Cent- uh, are you falling asleep there? No, I, that was me. That was the beginning of a migraine. Uh, <laughs> his no, but, eyes rolled yeah, so far back into his head. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, like the, there was a like, and and it should be said, like there is a lot. There's a lot of silly bugger in both the NDP and the Tory campaigns. The you know we're gonna take the federal government to court to sue them. For uh, Heather, the way Heather Stephenson put it was for putting carbon tax on your Manitoba hydro bill. Well, first of all, it's only on the natural gas portion of the bill, and the government is involved in programs trying to get you to to convert from that to electricity, and you know, and that's really a good thing to do. So we pay less carbon tax by burning less, you know, natural gas. But it, I, I just so that that to me was that was silly bugger. Just the way that I still think that the uh, that Wobbs promise to uh, to freeze hydro rates was silly, 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 silly. <laughs> so silly you know. in the most silliest of ways. Yeah. Um, but uh, we've spent now, you know, forty minutes or so in the. He podcast. keeps resetting the clock, so we, won't, we well, don't know how long we've been I, at it, this. We're we're sort of at that forty-five minute point, and as we kind of bring things into order, close. Uh, one issue that I thought that you would probably talk more about that I will both nudge you on just slightly before we wrap nudge. up. It's healthcare because certainly yeah. for a lot of people, that seems to be one of the biggest motivating factors. And in the absence of Heather being able to give an account of herself, uh, the PCs have certainly not, not said a lot on healthcare other than to say that, of course, the pandemic meant that they were not able to do what they wanted to do, which I think is fair. But um, an issue that I think you mentioned last week, Dan, was the fact that it's somewhat strange that a lot of the announcements that have come out from the Progressive Conservative Party have not been led by the Premier. No, it's. uh, I wrote in my newsletter this week, I, I actually tracked the announcements that the parties made and whether how many times they did announcements in one of their own held writings and how many times they they go to a, a writing held by another party so if you if you're only in your own writings you're playing defense right you're in a defensive posture if you're do most of your announcements in writings other than nd you know writings that you hold then you're on offense the tories only did two announcements during the campaign that were not in Tory held writings. There were t- two other writings. One was 
an event they did at 300 Main because they just wanted to be in a big shiny building. So that really isn't riding specific. And then Kelvin Gertzen did a scrum outside 23 Kennedy, which again is not riding specific. But outside of that, only twice did they go anywhere near uh, an NDP riding. The New, De- or the New Democrats, on the other hand, did 10 full announcements uh, during the campaign in ridings held by Tories. Some of them double dipping, uh, and uh, they and only did like a couple in their own writings. And so, you know, yeah, like it's healthcare, but the, and you know the reason why the Tories had so little to say about healthcare is because you know they went hard on all kinds of government announcements until August first. And then they got caught by surprise because the NDP came out in full campaign mode at the beginning of August and hammered healthcare announcements. And when the progressive conservatives did then get out there themselves, you had folks like Scott Johnston, Kelvin Gertson, uh, Kevin Klein, and even uh, former podcast guest Rochelle Squires being the folks making the announcements. Again, as the somewhat neutral guy, it just seems weird. Health Minister Audrey Gordon. Yeah, I actually, uh, I'm going to say right now, like, uh, there's an Amber Alert out for Audrey Gordon. Uh, like, I no, I'm concerned. I mean, but... Did I'm make concerned the... that something has happened. And uh, Audrey, if you're listening right now... I mean, last seen in August making an announcement about HSC, but generally, yeah. I mean, after having been the face in many ways of some of the more brutal examples within the healthcare system of people dying people being transported and dying and and, you know being audrey gordon forcing her to face the heat on that uh then when it came to making the rosy announcements there was no one to be seen no and i mean i think the problem is that um you know really uh brian pallister broke it and uh and heather stephenson ended up having to buy it uh, you know, when it comes to healthcare, and like, do I think that what they were tr- like, what Heather was trying to do in the last two years, a lot of it was positive, but I think they largely ignore. You know, they refuse to deal with the central issue, which is people who the healthcare professionals, and we saw it this week, right, where um, the NDP hosted an event with like eight opinion-leading physicians in the city, like some really heavy hitters. And came out today with a letter from HSC doctors. I mean, they that's really the have on their side. Oh, yeah, that's, that's yeah. the same one. I mean, the, the they just coming out time and time again, the nurses' union, yeah. people in healthcare. Allied healthcare know, workers, just, yeah. It, they're really winning that ground game battle. And, you know, you couldn't probably also pick a worse time for... Uh, people to go on strike in the civil yeah. servants in Manitoba. I think the, like for healthcare and, you know, when we did our election panel and, and former health minister, Aaron Selby was part of our panel. Like we did get in her grill a little bit because, you know, when she talked about, um, you know, the NDP is more credible on healthcare because they know we can do it. We can hire more nurses. We'll get more doctors. We can do it. I, I'm not so sure they can. And I, I have written a column about the fact that certain parts of the healthcare system are so broken. I'm not sure anybody can fix them, not in conventional ways. But the one thing that the New Democrats have going for them, other than the fact that they're not PCs, is <laughs> the fact, though, that they, they do know how to talk to these groups. The one thing that the progressive conservatives did not do is they never talked to physicians about reorganizing the hospitals. They never talked to nurses. 
They never asked them to help plan the process. They just came up with the plan, they delivered the plan, and then they expected to, people to fall in line. And that was the literal manifestation of Brian Pallister's leadership style. Uh, you know, let it, so let it be written, so let it be done. I can hear Yule Brenner's voice in the back of my head from the Ten <laughs> yeah. Commandments, right? But uh, sorry, for younger pod listeners, yeah. Uh, you want a Wikipedia Yule Brenner and Ten Commandments on that one? <laughs> Even I don't know that one. Yeah, okay, sorry. Well, it's a famous quote. Just get over <laughs> it. <laughs> but no, but it, it like that my way or the highway approach. You know what? It it didn't work. And the re- in particular, the revenge of the nurses. You know, like, cause, well, yeah. We've been running a campaign yeah. for a long time. You guys are going to leave, uh, you know, uh, uh, you're going to leave the Grace Hospital. You're going to leave Concordia. You're going to leave Seven Oaks. And we're sending you downtown to work at Health Sciences Center in St. Boniface. And the nurses went, uh, I don't think so. And they went, and a lot of them, like, they retired. They left the province, and a ton of them went and worked Pro- in the private, the private sector. sector. Yeah, yeah. You, you know what? Like, to not anticipate that reaction... It, that is that it that it goes beyond bad planning to incompetence, and you know what? Like once you convince people that you will not listen to them, even when they were introducing things to fix things, they were doing it without consulting with anybody. The the task force was just saying, "Yep, we're going to do this at the Grace Hospital." Well, we don't really care what people at the Grace Hospital think. We're just going to do it, like I, I don't know. Like I don't know how they could have expected a different reaction now to see all these groups coming out and and now campaigning against them it's and I extraordinary think that, i mean the, the one thing i'd also just add about healthcare that it just the wait times um it the power of social media when it comes to wait times and i wrote a piece about this um and the real life granular impact on families of waiting up to 24 hours for basic procedures, or in some cases, emergency procedures when it came to my father, uh, being literally in heart failure and having nobody to see him and there's no bed, there's no pillows available. Like that's, that is absolutely atrocious and how I I think people uh, react to those kind of Mm -hmm. little experiences that their neighbor has had uh, that isn't little to the the neighbor, but of course becomes this story and -hmm. becomes a sort of legend. And I think that the legend of the failing of healthcare is very much being put at the foot of the Conservative Party. People can, the Conservatives can all day say that it was the NDP's fault and, and they inherited a broken system to begin with. We can talk about Brian Powell's, but the fact is that uh, it is very much seen as a Conservative failure. Yeah. And it is that is the story that's in the streets. I, I think it, it will be interesting because, um, you know, again, like friends, family, acquaintances, whatever, Everybody wants to share their healthcare horror stories. I had a conversation recently with somebody who said, yeah, well, you know, my kid broke his, uh, broke his arm playing baseball. And we had to wait five hours in an emergency room on a Saturday night. To, That's to pretty get good, to, actually. No, no, no. Well, I was going <laughs> to, and I said to them, well, you know, when you have a non-life-threatening condition, and, I, you know, hey, sorry about your son, right? Like, I hope he heals well. But, like, you you really think that five hours yeah, is probably. is too much? But this is now an expression of expectation, right? Is that you know the people who waited thirty hours to get you know to get somebody to help them with their uh, gallstones, or like the people you know people who take their elderly uh, mother or father into the ER and really get put through the ringer 
and where you're already like you're worried like is this is this the end am i witnessing the beginning of the end that's so stressful and so much like you were in the er for a long long time with your dad well you know what like suddenly everybody is commiserating like everybody is yeah. talking off the same points even though really a lot of us still get like pretty darn good healthcare. Like when we are, have an emergency, something when something threatens our life, we do not want for anything in this country. What we're talking about is the backlog and the mismanagement of elective procedures uh, that that and it's unconscionable. And some overrun ERs that are now incapable of handling what was supposed to be a smooth transition to streamline services that never really materialized. And this is where this the argument that the conservatives make that the, the pandemic messed up their plan that just hasn't cat caught it just hasn't caught whether it's true or not yep. i don't think people care about it anymore they just know it's broken yeah it's i think it's a shame like for the conservatives that the pandemic didn't give them a better excuse for what they did to healthcare prior to the pandemic and there's no doubt that it really did like complicate it but what they did was they weakened the system. They, they, uh, you know, it's the largest driver of, of government expenditures. It's like a huge, you know, billions and billions of dollars worth of expense every year. And Brian Pallister made a wager, right? He bet that he could starve the system, flatline funding in essence, and that that would leave, um, you know, enough money to uh, cut taxes, largely cut taxes, and balance the budget, and which were his main priorities, without breaking health care. And then, like, once the taxes were cut and once the, bal- the budget was balanced, then he, I think he, he thought he was going to slowly build things back up. But the fact was he, he, he cut or froze too much. He froze transfers and to municipalities. Times, so aggressively yeah. that you just, yeah. just ignored the pivotal issue of the downtown, which led to all of this... Uh, addictions and homelessness crisis. It took an already bad situation and made it exponentially worse by removing social organizations in downtown and so on. I mean, uh, you know, we've we've talked about this numerous times during the podcast. And and um, one thing that I I am very sad about is uh, we absolutely would have given space to the Conservative Party to say everything that they would um, they would want. Uh, they even could have sent us a representative. I think we would have been open to that at the at the 11th hour to at least certainly talk and present the party platform. Uh, but unfortunately we just, we did the best I think we could today and that we could to talk about the issues. Maybe uh, we didn't get to tax cuts, which maybe the conservatives would have liked to talk a little bit more about. Um, I think people can look up that and we encourage people to look up their par- policy platform on that. We can look up uh, the, the hiring of more police officers to deal with the issue of crime. Uh, they can look up the, uh, the various amount of, uh, promises of uh, buy, you know getting more nurses, more doctors, what, whatever the policies uh, that you want to look up in the Conservative Party, they're all there to see and I encourage people to do that. Yep. As the sort of quasi representative of the the listener in this kind of setting, oh, is that is that who you are now? Is the sure, I, you're, you're not, the, we're not auditioning to be the third? We were going to call you Silver. <laughs> I might have to reconsider my position. Yeah. but no. In all seriousness. Uh, thank you both for having a very pragmatic conversation about the issues that are at hand here. I think it's fair that we're all genuinely saddened that uh, the Premier didn't have an opportunity to have her own crack at the whip here. And you never know, post-election, maybe we will have that opportunity, whether she be 
a representative in the legislature, so whether she be the premier, we don't know, but it would be wonderful to have her. So when you, you told me to get over her, you're, now you're raising my hopes again that she might come and talk to me? I'm just being as uh, gentle <laughs> as possible with you, Dan. Um, so, yeah. One thing I did want to say, though, yeah. is uh, to, to sort of pick up on Nigan's point, please, folks, be as informed as you can about yeah. these issues. Get out there and read the platforms of the parties that are running. Look at the candidates that are running in your riding. And for heaven's sake, please get out there and vote. Yeah. I, I don't I don't really think... I, I know a lot of people will respond to the negativity uh, that's entered the campaign, uh, maybe uh, lamenting the uh, the lack of support that their party has. Look, like, like we're all going to put on our big boy and big girl pants right now. Uh, if the progressive conservatives lose the election, it won't because it won't be because they didn't in large part deserve it. They have done a lot to erode support for for their government. And in fact, I, I think that they, under normal circumstances, if they had been clever about it, they had at least one more majority mandate in in the uh, in, in in you know in their in their future so you know i i don't like are they going to lose i i am still not willing to say that i know the outcome but if they lose it won't be because the tories didn't do something to deserve it and that's and that's where we have to be less emotional and more pragmatic there's no conspiracy there isn't a party major party running in this election that would ruin the province there isn't that's that's often the tenor of discussion, right? Oh, we have to save the province from the other. Or that guys. one party is yeah. not experienced enough. I mean, I think that's Whoops. preposterous. I mean, every <laughs> government that comes in is virtually yeah. inexperienced. When yeah. Brian Pallister started, virtually inexperienced. Yeah. Almost the entire caucus had no idea what they were doing. Yeah. So the idea that uh, offering any party is inexperienced is I mean, they're all inexperienced. Yeah. Actually, you know, the funny thing is like that Brian Pallister sort of got kicked out of Gary Philman's cabinet which maybe should have been a foreshadowing for what happened when his own his own party kicked him out sorry sorry brian there's somebody else who won't be on the podcast oh we'll check the uh the markings uh where people are listening from and see if he's listening. (laughs) that's right we'll look for that big glowing dot in portage la prairie (laughs) oh god now i've heard a silly line a few times in the past that it doesn't matter who you vote for it's always the government that gets in and i think with that kind of attitude uh, do people ever spoil ballots here? You know, oh, yeah. Well, folks, if you don't like any of the platforms, go out there and spoil your ballot because then at least your vote is still being counted. The previous opinion does not represent the <laughs> producers of yeah, the Nigan sure. and the Lone Ranger podcast. <laughs> okay. uh, well, we're trying yeah. to encourage people. I mean, I hope that everybody goes out. I hope everybody participates. Um, you know, one thing that has been just inspiring for me to watch this election has been my daughter, who has just every night went out and canvassed. I mean, arguably she's... Been car- and I've been fraught. You know, I've been open to saying that it's been for the NDP. So, um, but she has been. Co- she's become this provincial politics guru in our house that really mm. holds me to account and constantly is reminding me of the different things that are happening in the campaign. Uh, and so, I think I've been more engaged, not just from the podcast, not just from being friends with you, but um, but just that I have this young voter who's 17 about Mm -hmm. to vote for the very first time caring so deeply about the province that like in tears with her friends cares about these issues and i think that's a good thing for all manitobans and and i can confirm both of my kids uh 
voted in advance polls, which means uh, that I can extend their residency in my house. <laughs> Because uh, they know that was that, that up for not, well, th- it's it's a rule that if you don't vote in any election where you're eligible to vote, that it's sayonara, hit the hit the oh, road. Geez, talk don't about let the door hit you. We just in had the back this thing about parental out. rights, and now what the Ooh, yeah. where did this come you got, from? You know what? I had to stand firm. <laughs> I had to draw the line somewhere. And That's it's, right. Yeah, what a hard decision that was. Yeah. Uh, but we thank everybody for uh, listening to our. Uh, are, I mean, this is, was this the first podcast that we had no guests? Yeah, I think this is it the was. first podcast that, uh, well, you know, I think that's, that, that's, that's a marker. That's a tipping point in which we, uh, we did the best we could to fill up this time with each other. I think we didn't do, uh, didn't have any problem with that, but, uh, here we are in the CJNU studios, Adam, thanks again for filling in. Although Pleasure. now I feel like you're the, uh, you're becoming the third voice uh, on our pod here no we've agreed still not to be named after he who shall not be named on the podcast no i want to name him silver i'll be silver silver the silver the horse and i think that in the negon lone ranger podcast we need a silver uh and so big thanks to everybody at the free press as well wendy swatsky paul simon everybody who does a great job and you know all of our colleagues doing a great job showing once again that independent journalism is the key for provinces it's the key for communities if you want local, uh, important, critical journalism, I can promise you that some office in some major metropolitan city, hundreds of miles from us, would have done a terrible job covering this election. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah. Uh, what do they know? The, what do they know? <laughs> and in fact, I th- I'm contractually obligated <laughs> to one of them. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I just, yeah, we could edit that out at the end. <laughs> I would just say that we need local journalism to cover an election like this. And I hope this this election has proven that how critically important we provide a service to Manitobans and Canadians. Uh, I would agree. And and, uh, heartfelt uh, thanks to everybody as well. Uh, It's been intense, like, you know, to do six weeks straight. uh, But you love it. That's the thing. You are in your element. (laughs) I do not know what you're talking about, sir. Oh, come on. There's been a lot of joy. He's so much joy. (laughs) Yeah. This this last one with with Heather, you know, giving us the, like, you know, ghosting us, it's been hard on me. (laughs) I mean, we made fun of it, but it is... No, but I mean, seriously, I don't feel like we're better uh, as a podcast because we don't have her. We wanted her here to, to speak on her own behalf. And, uh, you know, I just, and the one thing is like when I, and I did meet her in Vic's market. I know you did. This story we've heard many times. Okay. There was a promise. And, but the bottom line of it is, is that we, I think we did the best we could. And, uh, and just a huge thanks to everybody who's going out there, go out and vote everybody, uh, go out and practice your right and evoke your right and, and, uh, make sure to, to, uh, when you do that. Uh, turn to the person beside you, even if you didn't vote like you or uh, think like you or act like you and just realize that we're all in this together. Good on you. That's what you should you look until they tell you to stop talking to the person in the next voting booth. Just <laughs> good on you. I meant outside. Yeah. The oh, okay. Booth, all right. Fair enough. <laughs> Thanks very much, everybody. And we will see you for a post-election uh, analysis of some sort, details to be provided at a later date. But I'm pretty sure I know who won't be on the podcast. But uh, so, okay, I'm letting it go. I'm letting okay, it, go let it go. Okay, thanks for watching, everybody. everybody.